You are listening to episode 50 of the Remind Yourself podcast. Welcome to the Remind Yourself podcast, the podcast for physician moms just like you who want to ditch mom guilt, stop yelling, and start enjoying their lives today. I'm your host, Michelle Chestovich, certified life coach, family physician, and mom of four. If you want to overcome overwhelm for once and for all, this is the place for you. Hello, Mama Docs. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. This week, you're going to want to listen in and make sure that you share with friends because today I am interviewing a fellow physician mama and we talk about all things sleep, why we're not getting enough of it, why it's so vital to our lives. You will also learn about a simple tool that you can put into practice today to help you evaluate how you're doing in your life regarding sleep and other things self-care because remember, we too are human. Enjoy the conversation. I am so excited for today's guest today. I will let her introduce herself. Welcome, Dr. Laura Vodder. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So I am an oncology fellow. In a few months, I'm going to be stepping into my attending practice in gastrointestinal oncology. I live here in Indianapolis, and I'm an advocate for medical trainees. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to have you here. So in this world of online meeting people, like I virtually met you on Instagram and I've been so impressed with the work that you're doing. So tell me, how did you become such an advocate for trainees in medicine? And I'd say all of us in medicine is what I notice. It's been many reasons. So my mother went to medical school when I was nine. I watched her go through medical school and residency training before any of the work hours changed. I saw her, she was worked into the ground and she was exhausted. And then I went through medical training myself. My daughter was one when I started intern year. And there were days that I said to myself, you know, I have a master's in public health. I have a medical degree. Why in the world can I not take care of my health? Why am I so tired? And really at the end of the day, I realized that it's not me it's the system. We have so many structural changes that we need to fix in medicine. Also along the way in my training, I came up with a system to try to help promote my health, understanding that in medical training, this was really hard, right? Our telomeres shorten at a rapid pace. We age six times faster than average, right? I was terrified. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Yes. And so I created a tool for myself to just check in every day. Can I take care of my health? Here are five tools based on data, based on research, you know, sleep, exercise, meditation, social connection, and nutrition. And this kind of came together in something called the smile scale, something that is just a simple check-in that I started doing every day. And through this, we were doing some research on the smile scale itself, but it's really through that, that I came to all of the data on sleep and came to understand how terrible sleep deprivation is for our mental and for our physical health. Increased risk for cardiovascular disease and strokes, weight gain, diabetes, cancer, more than double the risk of cancer when you're sleep deprived because your immune system is dysregulated. But something that was even more striking and terrifying to me as a doctor was the sleep deprivation I was enduring and, and learning that sleep deprivation is an independent risk factor. So sleep, sleep loss alone causes higher risk of anxiety, depression, and suicide. And I think that is really where I came to this aha moment saying, 
I want to change things in medical training because this is not healthy for us and it's not healthy for our patients. Oh my gosh. That is so awesome. And I'd like to talk more about the smile tool that you created, but as my listeners have known, I also sing the importance of taking care of us as human beings. And if you haven't listened listeners to my episode 11, I invite you to go back because I really delve into how exhaustion played a role in my dear younger sister's death by suicide last March. So I am with you 100%. I so admire the work you're doing and we all need to band together to realize like, yes, we're human and yes, we need sleep. But more than that, like Doc Laura has all this information and statistics to like back it up. So we're not being wimpy. So many of us are driven. Don't you find that to be true? And it's the culture. So tell me how that makes it hard for us to get even just the sleep that we humans need. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. How, if you look at other industries in the United States, pilots are required to sleep for periods of time before they fly. Because we know that in any industry, when your brain is tired, you're more likely to make mistakes. And in medical training, we know this is true. Medical training and practice, tired doctors make more mistakes. That harms patients, that causes liable harm to patients. So it's not good for patients at all. So pilots, they must sleep before they get on and fly a plane. Truck drivers, they have periods of time that they are mandated to rest so that they're not on the road harming other people accidentally. But yet, this does not apply to doctors, which makes no sense. Yeah, I've right? been scratching my head because again, I really think that sleep deprivation the week that my sisters died was a huge contributing factor. And I thought to myself, pilots have work hour restrictions. So do truckers. Why is a radiologist at a level one trauma center working for 17 hours straight making life or death decisions? So that was one situation that ended up like really harming her that week. But there are so many of us across the nation providing medical care, surgeons, physicians, all of this. Why isn't it changing? Like we know that it's not good for the patients. We know it's not healthy for us. So why does it keep happening just because we're cheap labor? Yeah. So our culture, we live, we train and we practice in a culture that is fiercely adherent to tradition. And this model of sleep deprivation has persisted for more than 100 years, 150 years. And it is believed that somehow doctors must experience sleep deprivation to be good doctors. There's Some will argue that if I'm in a surgical training program, if I don't experience sleep deprivation, then I'm never going to be able to see all the things that I need to see, right? There are a lot of doctors who believe that if you're not on call for 28 hours straight, how are you going to be able to learn how to take care of, of a patient with diabetic ketoacidosis, right, which is a disease that you will see in the hospital that will change over time. But there, there are doctors who still truly believe that this is helpful for training purposes to help with education. And I think at the end of the day, though, when it comes down to it, if we look at the data and we talk to people about making changes, it comes down to staffing and it comes down to cost. Because if you're trying to overhaul a residency program's scheduling, you either need to have a large program. Thankfully, my internal medicine program made huge overhauls my last year of residency. We did away with 28-hour shifts because we had almost 100 residents. Wow. We could do night floats. We could do creative things. We could change things around. But some programs only have a handful of residents, and they simply cannot do it. 
So either we need to expand the residency positions, which we need to do anyway, because yeah. we have a position shortage, right? Put those residents in programs that can then balance out the work. Um, or we need to hire additional people, hospitalists, APPs, other people who can fill in these gaps in care. But the problem with that is that costs money. All of those solutions cost money. Right. The easiest solution is to just keep doing what you're doing if there are people who still argue that sleep deprivation is best, which there is no data, no data that sleep deprivation is good for doctors or good for patients. Oh my goodness. I just want to like amplify that again. Did you hear that? There is no data that shows that that's helpful. And in fact, there's data that shows that could be harmful. I've seen some of your um, posts on Instagram that talk about sleep deprivation and how that equates to blood alcohol levels. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so the CDC um, has this very readily available on their website, but there have been research studies for at least 20 years, 25 years, that we know that if you've been awake for 24 hours straight, you have a blood, uh, blood alcohol con- concentration that is higher than the legal limit for driving. So the legal limit for driving is like 0.08. When you've been awake for 24 hours or more, it's higher than that level. Yeah, I think so I saw are, like 0.2. So it's like the equivalent of a 0.2 blood alcohol level, right? Mm-hmm. And so what kind of decisions are physicians and residents and med students making situations like this, right? Right. So they are, we know that there's cognitive fatigue when you're awake. Your brain, our brains don't function without sleep. So you have decreased memory recall. You have decreased attention. You have decreased intelligence. We actually know that yeah. your ethics decrease when you're sleep deprived, that you're more likely to do something that is unethical because your body is just trying to survive. And then, so you're sleep deprived. You have to not only, you know, if you're a surgeon, you're, you're operating, you might be doing procedures in an ICU or an emergency room. And then you finish your shift and you have to drive home when you are the equivalent fatigue to being legally drunk. And we know that when you're sleep deprived as a physician, your risk of a car accident increases significantly. So there yeah. is absolutely no benefit to patients and risk to patients and doctors through being sleep deprived. And not only that, risk to other people on the road. I just feel like I want to like go march and have a parade and say like, hello, this is dangerous for everyone. Patients, physicians, and people on the road. Because I had several colleagues in residency who got in accidents on the way home. I thankfully never got in an accident, but I remember being at this one stoplight. I'm just going to close my eyes for two seconds and then horns were blaring because I fell asleep at the stoplight. I've driven the wrong way home because I didn't know what I was doing. Right. When you're up for 36 hours, like your brain's not thinking right. And in fact, what I'm hearing from you is it happens much earlier than that. It does much, much earlier than that. And I think we have to, if we really care about the health and wellness of physicians, not just residents and training or fellows, but of all physicians, if we care about their health, we have to care about them as human beings. And we have to do away with things like sleep deprivation that destroy their health in the short term but also for the decades to come. Yes. And in fact, all of a sudden I'm thinking like, isn't it even a form of torture? Like I don't, I'm, I'm anti-torture, but like it, it not only isn't helpful, like it is horrible. Like it, there are lots of consequences, not only immediately, but down the road. That's something that I don't even often think about, but that's so interesting to see that you, you know, share those statistics too. Yeah, I've come to the realization, and, and this is a lot of my thinking on this has been framed by Matthew Walker, who is a one of our probably most successful, well-known sleep researchers here in the United States. And he wrote a book called Why We Sleep. 
And he talks about this, how we've done away with sleep deprivation as a form of torture because we feel that it is unethical. He believes that when we look back on this, hopefully sooner rather than later, that this will no longer be a thing, that we're going to look back on it with deep shame that yes. we asked our doctors to endure this. That's exactly right. I mean, we put so much time and energy into helping others. And of course we want to, right? You take the people who are very intelligent and highly driven and who are going to do all the work and we want to help the people. We want to do the hard stuff, but then we treat them like this as non-humans to say, just do more. And who's going to have a hard time saying no to like do a little bit more because it's for the good of the patient. Exactly. The people who need the sleep, right? Right. Right. And I think what happens too, is we learn very early in medical school, because we all will experience sleep deprivation to some degree in medical school, then it persists during your intern year and through residency that this is just the model that everyone does. We're just taught to adopt it without really second guessing it. We work and live in this culture where we look at evidence-based medicine, right? In every other area, oh, this patient has atrial fibrillation. This is the new medicine I need to use. My patient has colorectal cancer with this mutation. This is the new drug I'm going to use. But for whatever reason, we have a we have this mounting evidence that's 30 years of duration about sleep being harmful for our patients and harmful for our health, yet we don't look at the evidence as a culture of medical training and practice to our detriment. And I think that we need to seriously reconsider the decisions that we're making and stop training medical students and residents that this is just normal so that when you're asked to do this in your practice, to be awake for a week at a time or days on end or work extra shifts where you've been awake all this time. We accept that as normal because that's what we've been trained to do. But I think we need to stop and take a hard look at that and go back to those early years and have medical students question it and have residents question it so that when they get to the period of time when they're practicing medicine and hopefully they have more options to be able to say, no, this is not ethical and I'm going to choose something else. That's exactly it. And you, you bring up a really valid point about they have other options to choose, right? In training, like you're in your residency and it's, you know, most of us are very grateful. We get into a great residency program. And if we don't follow the rules, if you will, I think a lot of us are afraid. Now what? That's so true. And when you're in a training program, you have so much to lose. You have debt, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. A lot of my colleagues are on a visa. Their families are counting on them. Many of them are the sole income earner for their families. All of this is hanging on their shoulders. They're trying to make their family proud. So now they're facing all of this and everyone in front of them has already been through it. So, you know, they, they feel trapped. They feel like they might not have any other options. And it's so part of the culture that it's normalized. So I, I feel that's a huge part of it. And I do think that that persists even after medical training because you have other issues. You, have, you might not have freedom in your own practice to be able to be vocal about some of these issues depending on the type, how receptive leadership is or what other options you have depending on where you live and your specialty and your visa status. That's so true. And again, I'm just thinking about my sister who I think was realizing that she was pretty tired. Her subtle cry for help um, in retrospect was the weekend before, you know, before her last weekend of call, she asked her partners, Hey, would anyone be willing to split the weekends? The interventional radiologists split their weekends. Would anyone here be willing to split the weekend? 
and nobody spoke up. And of course she just like went along with it. But for her at this point where she was already feeling very stressed and overwhelmed to have that two 17 hour days, which for her turned into about 19 hour days because she was an excellent teacher and took extra time. And oh, by the way, she has an 18 month old at home. I mean, this is something that we've not even spoken to, right? Oh my like, word. like not only are we working really hard, like a lot of times in our training and in our first few years of practice, or maybe even in medical school, like, oh my goodness, we're human. Some of us decide we want to have babies. You know, that's like an right. extra detriment, right? Like we forget that not only are we humans that need sleep, we're humans who have little ones who also need us in the middle of the night. Absolutely. My daughter, who's five, right? She's still, she sleeps through the night most of the time, but she still has needs and she still needs her mom and her dad. And when she was little, when she was 18 months old, that was absolutely true. And it becomes this, I think it becomes this hopelessness, this persistent and perpetual exhaustion that just feels like it's never going to end. And I think that's what's the saddest thing about what happened to Gretchen and what happens to so many so many other physicians in our in our country and around the world is that sometimes the pain of what they're experiencing is just so significant that it's not necessarily that they want to die but they want the pain to end they want the exhaustion to end they want the bullying to end and that is not how any human being should be treated especially human beings that have dedicated their whole life to take care of other people yeah, I think you just hit it right on the head. I mean, I don't think anyone at that point is thinking like, this is a good decision. It's just like, how do I escape the pain? And that hopelessness and despair is is real for many people. And so if anybody is listening right now, who's just thinking, oh my gosh, this is me. Like I'm dragging my body to work day after day. I'm sick. I'm nauseous. I have a headache. You know, that post-call feeling that goes on day after day, that's a sign that you need to just stop and remember that you're human and reach out for help. I always tell people like, it's okay for us to call in sick. The last time I talked to my sister was three days before she died. And she told me exactly that. She said, I just have a headache. I'm nauseous. I just feel sick. I said, sweetie, you got to call in. You just got to call in tomorrow and let them know that you're sick and you needed a day to rest. And she, like most of us dedicated physicians said, I can't, we're short at work. And so what would you say to someone who says exactly that, like, I just can't, like, I'm short. I have to keep going. This is just the culture. I have to keep putting one foot after another. Any thoughts for that? That is so hard, right? It's easy to say to our, to other people, Oh, we'll just take the day off and ask for help. It, but I can speak from my own personal experience that I, when I was a resident, I went to work when I had an upper respiratory infection. I was post-call and I had a UTI and I just rounded for the next seven yes. hours. I, right. Like I have, yes, we've all I done have, it. It's crazy. I have, right. I've, I've faced periods, especially in my residency where I had my sleep altered either through emergency medicine. It was like, I was on a, a whole month of overnight 28s. And then I did a, a block in the emergency room and then did a whole nother block of 28s. And I was in the ICU doing 28s. And I was on night float again. And it was like, five months where my sleep was just perpetually, perpetually fragmented. And that was the period of my training that I felt the most exhausted. I felt the most hopeless. I just felt like, I don't know how, if I can keep doing this, but I, and I, and I got sick during those periods and I still didn't call out. I still didn't, I didn't want to inconvenience my colleagues. I didn't want to, I didn't want to call jeopardy, but I will, I will tell you that if you feel this way, that your health and your life is so much more important than a single day of work or what your peers are going to think of you. 
And seeking help. You mentioned that seeking help. I think that's something that we're afraid to do. I can tell you, I had in my inbox as a resident, I created during that period of time, I created a, a draft email to, we have a psychologist who works with our residents. I created a draft of the email saying, you know what? I know that you work with struggling residents. I feel that I may be struggling, but I never sent that email because I was so terrified that I wouldn't match for my fellowship. And I knew that I had easier months coming and I knew that, right, I could see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it was still a long way away. Oh. And it wasn't until my fellowship, just a couple, actually my first session with my therapist was in January this month. So I've had two sessions with her. I finally sought out a therapist outside of my hospital system just to deal with so this, good. Just, you know, Everybody pandemic, get a stress, therapist or coach, trauma, yes. um, grief, grieving my patients as an oncologist. I see it as a way to protect my health and my longevity in this career, right? It's not a panacea, but having someone to talk to can be a huge asset if you have time to do it. And that's not always practical for some people, but seeking help and being at least having one person in your life who you can just be completely real with exactly yes. what you're thinking when you're having these thoughts. I think those are practical strategies. And then building these relationships with your colleagues that when they're sick, you step in when you have more bandwidth and then they're going to be more likely to reciprocate that because they're, they may feel like I'm in a culture where I can actually ask for, for help and someone may actually be able to help me. So being that person, right, to reciprocate yes. that and then, and then feeling more likely to be able to ask for it. So good. That's so important. And again, I think it takes bravery and it takes courage. I get that. Like it takes courage to step up and say, Hey, I need help. But I think the fact that we're going to, we're starting to talk about it more and more and normalizing it and saying, Hey, you know, my whole shtick is it's not just me, but it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to reach out. The more we normalize that, the more it's going to become more um, obvious. And the more we take care of ourselves, which we're going to get to your awesome tool on how to help yes. take care of ourselves. We realize that when our cup is more full, if you will, as an example, that you do have more bandwidth to help others. So many of us are running around on nearly empty that even just one night of sleep, like, okay, it's a few drops in your cup, but like, we really got to fill up in order to like, not only do a great job with our patients, but to enjoy practicing medicine and have energy for our family and friends, like that's a full cup, right? And so the things that you talk about in your smile tool, I think really help address that to help us, if you will, keep your cup full. I know it's a different analogy, but tell me more about this fantastic tool that someone would use prior to probably feeling like they just can hardly take one step in front of the other. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just want to say first that, you know, if you're feeling this way, that these are occupational hazards of your field, have feeling burned out, feeling anxiety, depression, or having thoughts of suicide. These are occupational hazards. And we know that is true in medicine and that if you feel this way, you're not weak, you do not lack resilience. There's not something wrong with you and you're not alone. There are, I guarantee you that your colleagues are feeling the same way. So I created this tool for myself, not as a means to kind of beat myself over the head that I'm not doing enough. And I wouldn't want anyone to use that tool as to say, ah, here are, all the, th here are the five things I need to do each day. I'm doing none of them. I'm a waste of a human being. It's not meant to be that. It's meant to be a reminder to take care of your health, that you're a person too, and that you matter. Because I can tell you from my, seeing my mother as a physician, how little she slept and sometimes how little she was able to care for herself because she was trying to manage her practice and take care of three kids and all of these things. So five things that we know, if you are able to fit them in, 
even if it's just during the week, maybe it's just once a week, but if you can fit these five things in every day, it's going to protect your health, help you feel good here and now, but also for the years to come. And this is based on data. So the, so it's a smile scale. Each letter of the word smile stands for one healthy behavior that we know promotes health. And then the scale, I give myself a daily score anywhere from zero to five. And I can tell you when I'm a zero, that's when I'm post-call or right. And I feel a lot worse. And when I'm a five, I tend to feel a lot better. So the first one is sleep. Am I getting enough sleep? Ideally, based on data, that's seven hours of sleep. And ideally, that's a, a seven and a half hour window in bed because you need time to fall asleep. And sometimes you wake up at night. So am I having a seven and a half hour window in bed and hopefully asleep for at least seven hours? If that's true, give yourself one point. The next one is move my body. Have I been physically active? I think for physicians, this is one of the hardest things to do just because our schedules are so busy. And I, I tend to believe that all activity counts. You're walking through the hospital. Yes, you're get those steps years. in, right? Like how can mm -hmm. we get those steps in? Exactly. And, and not beating yourself up, right? Maybe it's realistically, you can only exercise a few times a week, but count that, right? Just do your best, but that's going to help you feel well. It's going to help keep your, of course, we know this, your, your cardiovascular health, reduce your risk of cancer, keep your muscles and bones strong. The, the third letter is inhale and exhale. Am I finding healthy ways to reduce my stress? We know, we see our patients, there's all sorts of unhealthy ways to reduce stress, but are we, are we doing it in a healthy way? This can, you know, be, this could be developing a meditation practice, which a lot of people are very skeptical of. I had anxiety in medical school that became quite severe. And I started meditating because of the science of increased GABA of that inhibitory neurochemical. And so I've been meditating since then. And I can tell you that when I get away from meditating, that I can feel that anxiety start to rise. And I know that for me, it's been a tool just for 10 or 15 minutes every morning that I do some stretching at the same time every day and make my tea and I do that. And that's, that's sometimes that's, that's, you know, my only activity for the day, but meditation, maybe it's mindfulness, maybe it's reading a book, maybe it is going for a walk outside, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's listening to music. What are the things that are really, that can help reduce your, your stress in a healthy way? And how can you build those things back into your mm -hmm. life? Yes. Um, the fourth one is love and connect. So there's a study at Harvard that's been going on for more than 80 years called the, uh, uh, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And what they found through the study, they thought that they were going to say, oh, L it's LDL cholesterol or this or this or this that predicts longevity. But they actually found that it's the strength of your relationships um, that can really help predict your, your health and your longevity. So we know that having, you know, one, two or three people that you can rely on when you're in financial crisis or emotional crisis, right? Having those strong relationships is highly protective for your health. So you know, the question I ask myself is, am I meaningfully investing in my relationships each day? For me, that's with my daughter and my husband every day. Are we doing something? Are we being intentional? Are we having a conversation? Um, and then the last part of this is e, eat to nourish. So am I putting healthy foods in my body, right? And as a family, as a family practice physician, oh my gosh, you knew so much about this and saw this, but how eating plant, eating mostly plants or just putting more plants into your diet, things that are grown in the ground, grown on trees, those are things that are going to promote your health. There's a ton of science behind this, things like antioxidants and phytonutrients that slow the growth of cancer and reduce angiogenesis and right have all these positive benefits on your cardiovascular system. But really, the big picture is eating more plants, putting them in your diet is going to help you live longer and to feel better. So that's the smile scale. Oh my Sleep, gosh. Movement, inhale, I exhale, love, love and connect and eat to nourish. And it's not meant to, like I said, to be 
this, these are the things you have to do, but just a gentle nudge to remind yourself that these are the things that are going to promote my health. I absolutely love it. And it's, I'm all about like simplicity. Most of us don't like, oh my gosh, I gotta do one more thing. Get all this big checklist. It's like, no, you guys print this out. I will make a link to it in my show notes and just print it out and like, look at it. And then it'll just become like habit, right? Like we don't think about brushing our teeth, hopefully, right? Like that's just such a beautiful habit. Like this will just become part of your habit. And then you can like check in and like, when am I feeling out of whack? And there are going to be days where you are, maybe you score a zero or a two, right? Which is okay. That's part of life. And yet what I would say is then we start to notice like, is it staying there? Because then that's maybe the sign that you need to take the next level of like reach out. Maybe you need a break. Right. Yeah. So true. And I think, I think it's helpful too. Like if I am really feeling down or I'm not feeling well that day. And then if I just take a step back and I kind of go through this mouth scan, I'm like, Oh, well, this is why, you know, I didn't do this or this. or I know I haven't, I haven't been focusing all my time on all the other things that I thought were more important but I've completely been neglecting my health. And I think it's kind of, for me, it serves, can serve as a wake-up call and just a reminder to, to nudge me back, reminding myself that I'm a person too, right? We as healthcare workers are people too. We deserve the health that we strive so hard to give to our patients. That's so true. As a family doc, right? I went into family medicine because I believe in prevention and I wanted to help my patients, you know, seek wellness in their life. So too, as a physician, like I've been aware of myself and my colleagues and I'm always that squeaky wheel and we'd be at extra meetings in the morning. I'm like, wait a minute, who here has exercised this week? This is typically when I'm out running or who here has gotten their sleep? Why are we doing this meeting late at night? And so I've kind of been that squeaky wheel over the years. I think it is important because again, I would say to these people, just because again, Um, I love them and would ask them, like, we tell our patients to move their body. We tell our patients to get sleep and to take care. Are we listening to ourselves? Many of Mm -hmm. us would have to be honest and say no. And I think that's really unfortunate, which brings us back to this whole conversation. We care so much about our patients. We've dedicated so many years. Like, we need to be well or there's going to be a problem. Absolutely. If we cannot take care of our health, we're not, we're going to be unable to to care for our patients. And so our health is really, our health is really interconnected. And I think when we have that frame of mind, when we realize that when I am, when I as a cancer doctor am taking care of my health, when I'm getting enough sleep, when I'm working with my therapist, right? When I have a healthy, really healthy marriage, these things all make me a better cancer doctor. They allow me to be more present with my patients and to better care for them. It's not that I'm being selfish. It's actually that I'm going to be able to care for them better while I'm there and maybe for even longer years if I if I find satisfaction and health in the work that I'm doing. That's so good. And to me, this is just like the perfect, like beautiful tool of the example, how I talk about like, we got to fill up our cups, right? So we can serve others to be yes. generous and help others. Like we want, we have to take care of ourselves. And I just, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to like print this out and like send it to everybody. And you have a beautiful, there's a beautiful like artwork that you created or somebody that, you know, created with the sleep. Kimothy Joy. Yeah. She's an artist. It's on my website, lauravotter.com. Yeah. It's just, there's like a smile scale tab. It's free. You can, you can download it and use it. Um, yeah. And we're doing a research study right now at the Simon Cancer Center looking at the smile scale in patients with cancer. So hopefully oh my- there'll be some some other stuff coming up too. Goodness, that's awesome. Well, I will definitely put a link to your information in the show notes. What else should people know about Amazing You? All this cool stuff that you're doing to help, you know, trainees and physicians take care of ourselves. You're doing also all this awesome work with you know, your cancer training. Um, and there's neat overlap. You know, I hear you mention things about like the phytochemicals and how that helps prevent cancer. I'm like, this is such a beautiful blend of, you know, 
helping your Thank patients you. and helping us. I've noticed that you've done some speaking and you've mentioned a book. Is that something you'd like to speak about? Sure. Well, the writing has been an outlet for me. And I will encourage you if you're listening to this and thinking, you know, I'm feeling these things or, you know, just journaling. That's where my writing starting started was just journaling. Oftentimes it was the hard things that I witnessed, right, uh, with patient care, doing so in a way that's HIPAA compliant, respectful of your patients, right? Yeah. And then this turned into publishing essays and writing narrative, narrative essays. And then um, I've been working on a novel. I had the idea more than five years, five and a half years ago, and I have been, took me you know, more than two years just to find the courage to start writing when you've never done this. It just is this huge puzzle, this mental puzzle of writing a novel. But I have been, I'm working through my, my third draft now. I'm working oh with a gosh. writing coach, working with an editor. So I think so that, exciting. you know, the, pu the publishing process is a long, is sometimes years long process. So okay. I'm hopeful that, you know, in the next few years that there will actually be a product of all of this. Oh my gosh. We're going to have to have you back on to talk about it. And we'll have links. <laughs> I would love that. But I think I it's would just love so exciting to be able to read it now. Yeah, They would yeah, love it. And then again, I just want people to, to know that like, it is very therapeutic to write stuff down. Now I wish I had the beautiful skills. I've read some of your essays and they're phenomenal, but like, even just to like yeah. write down what has happened, it really helps us heal. I think because when it's just swirling in our brain, it, um, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we just really need to either share with others again in a safe HIPAA compliant way and or get it down on paper. So it's just, again, safe and mm -hmm. out of our brain. Yeah, I think it reminds I have people that read my essays or read things that I write and say, me too. You know, I have had that experience where I had to go walk to an emergency room and tell a patient that was doing fine and felt fine that they had a new diagnosis of metastatic cancer or I right had it, I had an experience when I was pregnant and I witnessed a stillbirth of the age the baby was the same age as my daughter was when I was pregnant with my first child and there was just this you know there's this you you remain stoic you are this clinician and then you step out of the hospital and you're a human being who has this other life and right there's no way to completely separate the two and I think that's what writing really does is it reminds me reminds I think others too that right that you know, our lives are complex and we're just humans taking care of other humans. Yeah. And, and we see some tough mm -hmm. stuff, which again, I don't have all the answers of how everything needs to change, but sleep is definitely one of the things. But I also think like, it would be so awesome if we had support, like a therapist or a coach that we met with regularly to help us process all of the trauma that we deal with on the regular. I mean, that's a talk for another mm -hmm. day. And my listeners have heard me speak to that because we do see tough stuff, right? And we're so compassionate. Like, of course, it's gonna, you know, right. And I'm a hole in our heart, right? I don't, I don't want to be the person that is just walks around numb and uncaring and doesn't connect with patients out of fear that I'm not going to be able to handle that. I want to care about my patients and connect with them, and obviously in a professional way. But I think that these are some tools: writing, therapy. These are all tools that can help. And just like you said, talking about it and normalizing it, telling medical students that this is part, this is part of medical training that is, you know, it's a privilege to get to do this work and entangle our lives with other people. But sometimes in that entanglement, right, there is going to be hardship that comes along with it. And how we process and cope is going to predict how well we're going to do over the years. Yes. Oh my goodness. That is so wonderful. Anything else that my listeners should know. I, I speak mostly to physician moms and, you know, med students so cool. out there listen to everybody. Everybody's welcome to listen. Anything I else that you want to make sure that they know? I love your podcast. Um, 
I'm just thrilled. I'd love to come back when I have, you know, my, my book is done. Of I just, course. if anyone's interested in this, you can always connect with me. I think you're going to link my website active on Instagram at doc Laura Vodder. That's V A T E R. And I have a website, lauravodder.com. Those are the two main places. And you can also, you know, shoot me an email through my website or connect with me through messages on Instagram. I'm always thrilled to be able to collaborate with people that are really passionate about this because Sometimes it feels like we are looking at a mountain and trying to figure out how to summit it. And there's so many changes we need to make to make medical training and practice better. And I think collaboration, especially with women, because there's something yes. about being a woman and caring about other people and having kids and right wanting medic medical training to be better for everyone. And so I'd love to collaborate with you. Um, oh my gosh. On this place. So awesome. You definitely need to check out her website and her Instagram. It's amazing. It's inspiring to me. And I'm so glad that we connected. Like somehow the spirits brought us together, right? Like I don't Perfect. believe that that was an accident. And so the work that you're doing to help trainees is phenomenal. And this work around sleep is phenomenal. I'm excited to see your studies that, that come out with the smile tool. Thank you, Michelle. This was so, great to be here. I really appreciate it. So glad to have you here. Thanks, Laura. Okay. Take care. Are you ready to take control of your life and put these tools into action? I'm here to help. I offer free consultations for physician moms to see if my one-on-one coaching package is right for you. You can sign up for a free consult at www.mamadoclifecoach.com.